Well, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? And one of the things that we can surely be thankful for is the wisdom that comes from God to us through the pen of Solomon. And so if you haven't been with us, you'll want to open your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You'll know exactly where we were going if you have been with us. We're continuing some potent wisdom which Solomon started giving us last week about what is good. So we've titled this God's Good Wisdom. He's teaching us about what is good for us living in a fallen world, a world that has been bent by the by the curse. It's crooked until God chooses to make it straight, and He's promised to do that in the very end, and we've already been there. We've preached that verse, actually, in the book of Revelation. And there will be no longer any curse, and we all long for that day. Solomon, at the end of chapter 6, before he plunges into his second sermon here in Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 6, he asks a very insightful question. He asks at the end of chapter 6, Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime under the sun? Meaning, who can... Who can really know? Who can show a person how to live wisely in light of everything that he's been saying, in light of what you know, that, that life is frustrating and futile and there, there is the reality of the fall? Who knows what is actually good for a person and, and how they live? Well, well, depending upon who you ask that question, and sometimes even when you don't ask it, uh, there's no shortage of opinions. Everyone has one, right? I mean... You can find them. You can find them everywhere, and you're likely to get a different answer from what Solomon has been giving us. Well, well, what is good is to get a, a good education. Without a good education, you can't get a good job, and without a without a good job, you can't live a good life. That's what's good for a person in life. You might get that answer, or someone else will say, "You know, what is good is for you to enjoy life." This is the you know, you only go around once, uh, grab all you can. That's what's good. There's nothing nothing really that matters in the end anyway. A pleasure-seeking life. Or someone might say it's, no, 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 it's, uh, it's, 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 it's all about restrictions. It's discipline. Deny yourself. Live on less. Save your money. Don't go into debt. Eat this way. And so on. Whatever it is. I mean, you could probably add to, add to that list. But what is good. What is a wise w- uh, way to live in, in times that are frustrating and, and complicated? Who really knows? Well, Solomon says God does. He's the creator. He's the one that brought the curse. He's the one who will lift the curse, and, and he knows. And he explains to us an approach to life that will help you greatly. It won't remove all of the fall. That, that's, that's the reality until Jesus comes. But it will greatly reduce your frustration if you listen to it. You see, because of the fall, we don't know. Man does not know. That's the reason that there's so many different opinions. The one who does know is God. And he gives us six approaches or perspectives to life 
that are good. And we started that list last week. This is wise living distilled into six mindsets, six approaches to life, or six attitudes, as, as one, one said. We know what we think. We also know what we like, but God knows what is good. And those things don't always line up as, as we were introduced to last week. And so we need wisdom, and Ecclesiastes is a, is a wisdom book. It, it's teaching us how to live life wisely with the fall or in a, a fallen world. You see, your list and my list of what is good and God's list of what is good may be two completely different things. In fact, they could even be irreconcilable. And if you stick your head in the sand and you pretend that you know the best way, you're going to live a frustratingly futile life. But, good news. If you look to God and receive His wisdom about what is good, you can reduce a lot of headaches that are going to come along in the fall. And you can actually enjoy the good gifts that God has given. That's what we read this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon begins in chapter 7 answering this question, and he gives six perspectives. You could think of of what Solomon gives us in chapter 7 like a set of glasses with with six lenses that, that, that actually help you see and discern what is good regardless of of what we see with our human eyes. If you gain the wisdom of Solomon here, you're going to read Wisdom's Eye Chart with 20-20 vision. And there are six of them. Six wise approaches to living that show us what is good for a man after the fall. And we covered the first three last time. To be sensitized to death, to be sober-minded, and to be self-controlled. That's a better approach to life. And here's what Solomon is going to teach us today. Three more. To be satisfied with circumstances or in the present, in verse 10. To be seeking wisdom over wealth, in verses 11 and 12. And then he wraps up this, this, this whole thing with being submission to God's sovereignty. We, we need all of these as we wait for Ecclesiastes 12, wouldn't when God promises He'll make right what is, is very wrong. And just by way of reminder, the first perspective that Solomon gave us was, was how we view death. So, Solomon says that it's good. God says it's good if we are sensitized to death. We, we learned last week that we should live aware of what we spend the majority of our time trying to forget. <laughs> We should live with a sensitivity to our demise. Now, I'm not, uh, don't think I'm going out on a limb and guessing here. That's probably not the first thing that would be on your list if you were making it. It surely wouldn't be on mine. While a party may be more, uh, uh, may, may be a more uh, pleasant event on a, on a Friday evening, Solomon says you'll gain greater wisdom if you attend a, a funeral. Pastor Alley told the, the group yesterday to, to approach it soberly, clearly, and that will give you the ability to, to live hopefully. It's true. We're not to live with some morbid preoccupation with death or, or allowing the, the, the thoughts of death to rob us from, from our joy in Christ, but what is good in a fallen world with death coming is to remember it's coming for you <laughs> and then to live like it. 
by way of review, the second reminder, this, the second attitude or perspective that he gave us to embrace is, is you should embrace the hard lessons of, of life. It's what the old-timers used to call living, uh, being sober-minded. Solomon says it's much better to, to listen to difficult truth, even if it comes in unpleasant packages. That's what he's, what he's saying here in, in verses 5 and 6. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. And the third thing that he taught us last week, third approach, is one of restraint, self-control. In verses 7 through 9, he gives four situations where it's better for a man to show self-restraint than to pursue an easy path. Every situation that Solomon describes there, whether it has to do with taking matters in your own hand with injustice, uh, taking the benefits of a bribe instead of doing right, taking the path of arrogance instead of patience, letting your anger go instead of dealing with things rightly, all of those are, are moments, things that feel good in the moment, but, but they'll have devastating consequences. So he says, what is good is to restrain, to, to not react, to, to have self-control. Be patient. Delay the uh, fleshly gratification in life. It may feel good for a moment, but it won't fix anything. It's going to bring greater consequences in a fallen world. It's going to increase your frustration. And that brings us to number four on the list. New information to us. It begins in verse 10. Number four. Sorry, that says one, two, three, four. Number four. To be satisfied with the present. The fourth thing that's good, a good approach to life under the sun in light of the fall is to be satisfied with the present. Look at verse 10 if you would. Do not say, why is, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask such questions or about this. Solomon now deals with a virus that infects most Baptists that grows stronger with age, doesn't it? <laughs> but every one of us can catch it. Longing for the good old days is what Solomon is talking about here. Does God know where we live or what? I sure wish the Bible was relevant to life, don't you? Solomon says what is good, what is a good approach to life, doesn't involve lusting after days gone by. You must not long for yesterday's life, is what Solomon says. Now, that's, that's a pretty common error, isn't it? I wish I could go back to before I had kids. Have you ever thought that? I wish I could go back to when I was younger. Have you ever thought that? I wish I could go back to life before I was married. I wish I could go back to before the accident or before the diagnosis. Or it may go something like this. Do you remember when we used to spend time together as a family, the former days of life? Do you remember when, and you fill in the blank, whatever thing, maybe in your church life that you remembered? Do you remember when we had the corn boil and the altar was full? You remember whenever we believed in soul winning and loved missions? I'm not tapping your phone. Solomon just knows exactly where you live. God says thinking things like that is foolish living. It's a longing to go back to the past, and it robs you from your usefulness in the present. 
The root of it is discontentment and unbelief, Solomon will show us. It forgets that there is a God who is orchestrating His perfect plan. That involves the past and also the present and also the, the future. We'll do the same thing. People that are living right now in the, in the heyday of Timberlake today, whatever is the thing that we enjoy doing, 20 years from now we're going to be tempted to say, do you remember whenever, whatever it might be? No one's immune to this. It doesn't mean that there weren't pleasant and good days. It, it, it may even mean that, that these days, the current days, are more difficult than the ones in the, in the past. But to long for the past in a way that keeps you from living in the present, God says, is a fool's way to live. Living that way will bring frustration and futility in life, and it will get you, get you nowhere. Let, let me give you a, a simple example of how it will get you nowhere. Have you ever felt the, the pangs of your age and, and longed for the strength that you had whenever you were, were younger? You ever reminisced about the way that you were in your 20s or 30s with, with no aches and pains and all your beauty was still present? And it almost sounds like a bad Nordatrack commercial, doesn't it? Maybe you've even tried to slow down the, the clock with exercise or eating right, but... But in the end, it hasn't helped to slow Father, Father Time. The only thing that has actually helped is to add a little bit more makeup. <laughs> you, you see, trying to live in the past, if you, if you get preoccupied with that, consumed by that, the way that it used to be, trying to live there, rather than accepting the present, that's going to bring a lot of frustration to you. I, I can remember a more serious example whenever Tracy and I were over at Cornerstone of a young couple that, that moved here from Pennsylvania to prepare for, for ministry. They had great potential and, and a heart for people. And they moved from Pennsylvania. The wife moved physically, but she never moved her heart. Her heart remained with her family. She longed for her old life and the ease that, that she had there. And they ended up moving back home and they never entered ministry. The issue in verse 10 is one of contentment and one of faith. Look at verse 10 again. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Notice there's an evaluation going on here. And there's a discontented tone to even the, the question. The focus is an assessment that a person makes. Why are, were the old days better than these? And God says, for it is not wise to ask such questions. It's a longing for something other than the present, driven by comparison, that leads to covetousness, and covetousness leads to discontentment. And Solomon says, that's not a good way to live. And you know this, besides the old days were not as good as you remember them. You were just as content then, it was just as hard, you just can't remember it because you're discontent now. <laughs> Time is a blessing that smooths the ripples out, isn't it? Doesn't it? Solomon's obviously not saying that you don't remember good things. I mean, in fact, God calls Israel to do that. What are the feasts? What are the things? Remember what God has done and remember the past. Remember the, remember the good days. But the purpose of remembering the past is to give thanks and to build hope in God, not to fill your present with dissatisfaction. 
you remember the past to build hope for the for the future because you know that God will will or, or can do it again. If you remember the past rightly, it can actually be a blessing. And if you embrace the fact that that God is the source of joy at all times, then then you'll look back at the past and rather than lust for it, you'll give thanks. Wow, do you remember how hard it was when the kids were little? But but God was faithful, wasn't He? Doesn't mean that you don't remember the hard things. Doesn't mean you don't remember the good things. Solomon says that's good. What is bad is to have a warped longing for the past that taints the present. And the key is the is the evaluation. Because what is good is not the circumstance, but trusting God through it. If you can think of the uh, the circumstance, if you think the circumstance brings you joy, then 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 you're going to long for circumstances. But if you see through the circumstance and realize that God's the one that's behind it, past, present, or even in the future, then then you're going to have joy and you're going to have you're going to have hope. Solomon reminds us that God is the one that brought those things, and He's the one that will that have brought these things, whatever these things are in the present, and and that should give you hope for the future. Because your hope's in Him. Brings us to the, the fifth approach. Told you it's potent. It's good stuff. Number five. The fifth approach to what is good in life is to be seeking wisdom over wealth. We would at verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who, who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life or the lives of its possessors. Now, here's another comparison proverb. Solomon sets up this, this, this lens, this approach to life by comparing uh, wisdom and, and wealth and and he tells us of a person who's gained an inheritance. And he says that that person receives benefits from that inheritance. And he says while an inheritance can bring benefits, wisdom is better. It's a better than proverb. Solomon describes a person in his day who has an estate passed on to them, and that benefits them in, in life. Now, Solomon's already told us about the danger of money, but he doesn't condemn having it. It's the, it's the love of money, the lust for money, or the dependence on money rather than on God. Money could be a tool. Solomon doesn't condemn having it. He just says living for it is futile. Chasing after it is, is going to cause you to, to burn uh, the midnight oil and, and, and leave, uh, leave a lot of stress and and some ulcers along the way. Now he kind of turns it on the other side. He, he uses the benefits of money to show us that something's better. Solomon says you need to understand that wisdom is more valuable than money. Money has benefit. This inheritance is a benefit. It brings some peace and stability in this person's life that Solomon is describing. But he says wisdom is more valuable. Godliness is better than, than gain. And if you have to choose, if you have to choose between money or wisdom, choose wisdom. That's the choice. That's what's good. Besides, money is no good without it. Just ask the last guy who, who won the lottery and is broke now. 
money without wisdom can destroy you. And if you have to choose between the two, Solomon says, choose wisdom. And you say, well, I want both. I want wisdom and money. Well, I can I feel your pain. I, I understand. But, but do you really want both wisdom and money? Only if it would be good for you, and God knows exactly how much will destroy you and, and how much will, will give you the tools that you need to, to serve Him. Remember Solomon's goal here. It's, it's to give us a list of perspectives that show us what is good for us because we can't tell ourselves in a fallen world. We are very poor evaluators. And when money gets involved, it, it makes our vision even ten times worse. We lose the carnival game of life where, where you have to guess which one weighs more. Have you ever seen that at the, at the little carnivals that they set up? There are two things that are there and you have to guess. You know, sometimes it's, it's the person's age. Other times it's which weighs more. We're horrible at playing that game in, in life whenever we have to, to pick which one weighs more, money or, or wisdom. But what is good is wisdom if that choice has to be made. He's not saying that you may not have both. He's not saying that they, they don't go together. He's saying as you look at life, you should value wisdom more than money, so you'll pursue wisdom first. If money comes, fine, but don't neglect the fear of the Lord to gain it. Then he explains why wisdom is more valuable. Look at verse 12. He says, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But, here's the contrast, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the, the lives of the possessors. Wisdom continues on. Wisdom preserves us. Solomon says just like money is shade or shelter, some of your translations may say that, or protection. Just like money is shelter, so is wisdom, but wisdom lasts longer. It goes farther. It remains, even beyond this world. Wealth provides temporary shelter, temporary shade, and protects you. Sometimes more than we think it really does. My friend Joel James said, the protection of money is like one of those cloudy days when, when you, you think you can go out without sunscreen and then you get fried because the, the clouds were there. You thought the clouds would protect you. Money can be like those deceptive clouds. It can bring some pleasure. If you have a little bit of it, sometimes the heat of, uh, of life is a little cooler and you don't sweat as much, just like clouds that, that come on a day at the beach, but, but you'll still burn without the umbrella of wisdom. Not to mention Solomon has already told us that too much money is burdensome. It's like too many clouds. It ruins your life with worry, like a rainy day at the beach. Now think about this. Why would God put this in a list of six perspectives that we need to live a wise life? I mean, God could have picked anything, but he distills it to six. Why does he put this here? Because it's not natural for our fallen nature to think this way. We think whenever we have resources then we have safety. We feel better with a full bank account than, than when it's empty. I do, don't you? Are you more confident on payday or the day before you get paid? 
But which is better in light of eternity? Wisdom or money? Which is better on the day of judgment? Wisdom, which comes from the fear of the Lord, or, or, or wealth? And there will be times in your life where you're going to have to make decisions in this life where you'll either gain more money or you'll gain God's wisdom. And in those moments, Solomon says that you have to, to choose. I can remember one of those moments for me. When I was still in the business world, I, I had a non-compete contract. It had a restrictive covenant in it that, that said I could not work in the, in the health care field for up to two years if I ever left the company. I had this specific contract because of the position that I was in and the knowledge that, that, that I had. And one of the provisions in the contract stated that if the company was ever sold, then they had to buy out this contract. Really strong restrictions. Imagine if you were an electrician and you signed a contract that said if you stopped working for whatever electric, electrical company, you couldn't work as an electrician for two years. It's your livelihood. So just as strong as the provision up front, on the back end, they had to buy it out. And it was a considerable sum of money. And that's exactly what happened. They ended up buying out the contract. It was enough to pay off my house. And I can remember watching the four other executives do that very thing. And I can remember watching them, all of us, receive this amount of money that was more than I'd ever received in any one lump sum probably more than, than I'd made in, a, in my lifetime, in a year. And I watched them pay their houses off, and now I have to make a decision on what to do with it. And we ended up using it to move to Lynchburg and paying for tuition to go to seminary, to enter into ministry, and to pastor at Cornerstone whenever they couldn't pay anything. I can remember one of those executives asking me, is that smart? <laughs> is that wise? To, I mean, wouldn't it be better to pay off your home? I mean, you'll be better off financially long term. My dad said it a little more bluntly. Have you lost your mind? That's exactly what he said. And the answer, it depends upon what you use to evaluate whether I'd lost my mind or not. Solomon says, use the scale that weighs wisdom over gold. Because God knows exactly what you need and you can trust him. And he works that out in, in your life. Sometimes those are hard decisions. And you have to know those things ahead of time. And God is the one who brings all things to pass. Let me give you the last one here. Solomon says, because God knows exactly what you need, you can trust him. And he works that out in life. The sixth approach that Solomon gives is to be in submission to God's sovereignty. This is going to reduce your frustration like nothing else in life. Or I can say it in a positive way. This is going to bring you probably this doctrine, this truth that Solomon gives you in verses 13 and 14 will bring you more comfort than about anything else in the Bible. Now, there are two applications that he gives. One in verse 13 and one in verse 14. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. He's talking about the work of God. What is the work of God? For who is able to straighten what he has bent? The work of God there is what God has bent, what God has made crooked. And he asks a question, who can straighten it? 
speaks of the, the general or, or universal level. This is, this is in general. God has made something crooked in general, universally. Now watch him apply it personally or, or specifically to you in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. There's a general and then there is a specific or personal application. Now, God's sovereignty is not a new topic. It's, in fact, something that Solomon is repeating. If you remember chapter 3, he spends the, the, the opening salvo after he proves to us in chapter 2 how life is futile. Wisdom won't get you there. Work won't get you there. Having stuff won't get you there. It's all futile. He shows us. He proves his point. Life is, is vain. Vanity of vanities. I've observed it. Here's my observations in chapter 2. His opening salvo of where you look is God, God's sovereignty, chapter 3. But here he places it in the list of perspectives for the good life. This is what's good in life, to think this way, to think through this grid system. He shows us how vital that is. Solomon calls us to consider something God has done and gives us wisdom in light of that. God's bent something. Notice it's now crooked. What's he talking about? Well, he's already told us. This is a direct reference to the fall. God will make all things beautiful in his time. In the curse, God has made this world crooked. Now, it's because of our sin. It's a curse that comes because of us. But God's the one that brings the curse. Solomon has told us before that, that God's the one that has, that, that has made things crooked. He did that as part of the curse. There's a judgment of man's sin, and this world is subjected to futility. Paul says it groans. Solomon says it's crooked. And Solomon says submission to, to God's plan that involves the fall, realizing that God is the one that brought that, and that's part of life under the sun, is going to reduce your frustration as you, as you live in it. Let me illustrate. Part of the fall, besides death that's coming, involves your work, doesn't it? You're going to toil. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. And creation is going to fight against you. Before, Adam worked in the garden. He worked in the garden. And, and whatever Adam put his hands to, it, it, it happened. It, it, fruit came from it. It wasn't, you know, uh, one step forward and two steps back in the garden before the fall. It was one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Won't that be wonderful again whenever you get to heaven? But right now, it's two steps forward and one step back. One step back. Do you find yourself growing frustrated when that happens, when things don't work right? Do you get irritated and angry when life doesn't go smoothly? Sometimes even blame God as a Christian? Do you see, God, why, why, why does it have to be so difficult? I know you do. You know why? Because I do that. <laughs> well, Solomon says when you feel like that, you need to remind yourself you're kicking against God. You're kicking against the curse that He has placed. Not just the trash can that fell over. 
Getting angry at the circumstances of life, even the ones that come from the curse, is not the path of wisdom or peace. Accepting or submitting to what God brings is. You remind yourself, ah, it's frustrating. Well, that's crooked. Because of my sin, God's promised to make it straight one day. When we try to straighten what God makes crooked, meaning the curse, that will end with lots of frustration because it can't be straightened by us. Only God is strong enough to straighten what He made crooked. Only God can undo the curse, which is why He came in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to how God will will straighten what He has bent. The resurrection is, is an illustration of that. It's proof. Jesus is also the answer to, to, to why God has to do it Himself. It, it must be Him, because we couldn't. And Jesus is the answer to when. When will God do that? He'll make all things beautiful in His time. And what God bent in the curse, Jesus straightens on the cross. Hallelujah. And there's no other way it can be done. God promised to remove the, remove the curse in the end, but until then, we must trust that Him even with the crooked things. That's the general principle. It's a wise way to live. Now He applies it individually. Look at verse 14. In the, the day of prosperity, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. You see His, his sovereignty there? God has made the one as well as the other. And, and he, he gives us a, a very helpful nugget here. He covers two individual applications of, of what God brings in our life. Uh, uh, what to do when things go well and what to do when, when times are adverse or when times are bad. And he starts by telling us what to do when things go well. And the, the wisdom is, is a pretty simple one. But I think you need this one probably more than the second one. What is the wisdom? What do you do whenever times are good? He says, you enjoy it. He says, be happy. When the good things come in your life, enjoy them as, as a gift from God. When good things come in your life, don't walk around wondering when you get to feel bad again. Don't walk around feeling guilty. He says, enjoy the good things and the good times that, that God gives. That's what is a good. That's a good approach to life. Do, do you have a hard time with that, like me? When things go well, do you think, well, something bad must be coming because it's too good right now? Aren't you tempted to think that way? You're tempted to think that way because of the fall, because you're, you're, you're sin nature. Adam never thought that way. He walked with God every day in the cool of the day. Adam, before the fall, never one day walked, went out, got ready with Eve to go out with, to walk with God in the cool of the day and say, oh, well, I bet God's not going to show up today because he did, you know, the last three days. That's going to be a bad day in the garden. Do you think, well, the, well, the, the sun's out today, so that must mean the rain's coming? God says that's foolish and not good. It may be sunny for 20 days straight, and if so, enjoy all 20 days. You don't know whether the rainy day is coming or the sunny day is coming, but God does. And He is so gracious to meet out for us exactly what we need for, for our good. Listen, 
there is not some karma compass in the universe that doles out equal portions of good and bad. The yin and the yang is not Christian. There's not some Satan and Jesus in some cosmic battle and one wins out sometimes and one wins out the other. That's not a biblical worldview. We naturally think in terms of give and take. You, you give to get, but that's not the way that God works. God withholds no good thing from them who walk uprightly. You need to repeat that to yourself probably seven times to the one time about bad stuff. He delights to give good gifts to his children, the Bible says. So if adversity comes, it's not because you're over your quota of goodness. It's because adversity would be good for you as well. That's what he says next. Look at the second part, verse 14. But when the times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the, as the other. So what do you do when adverse times come? And they come, don't they? Solomon says first, you remember God is sovereign over those two. And you embrace it. And you be thankful because it has a purpose and it's his purpose. Walt Kaiser said for, for prosperity in the good that comes from God's hands, be thankful and rejoice. But in adversity, in the crookedness of life, think. Reflect on the goodness of God and the comprehensiveness of his plan for men. Why does he bring both pleasure and pain? Because there's a fall, there's a curse. Verse 14 tells us how that benefits us, how that can be good, how the fall can even be good in our life. Look at verse 14, look at the end of it. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. That's, that's the reason that God brings both. The purpose is so you won't be presumptive. And so you'll trust Him. So that you'll depend upon Him. That's the reason He brings both. Because trusting in Him is the path of joy, whether goodness comes or whether adversity comes. When things don't go easily and adversity comes, you're to consider God who is in control of both. Now, you may be thrust back to some of those questions whenever adversity comes that, that we talked about in chapter 3. How or, or why? And when we ask, why does God allow some things? We ask those questions at times. Job did. Why was my, my child born blind and, and, and remained that way for 30 years? Well, well, Jesus says it was for my glory. That's the ultimate reason, His glory and, and our good, but it doesn't ask the specific question, answer the specific question, does it? And God's not in the habit of filling in those details. Or why? For why, is He? He says, I've given you enough information to submit to me that I am and that I am good, even if I don't answer the specific why question. Why my child or why my life? And to not trust Him is to be foolish and even rebellious. Paul says it this way, who are you to answer back to the Creator and say, why have you made me this way? Who are we to question God or, or demand 
that, that he tell us his reasons or his purposes. He's the potter, you're the clay. And besides, we, we couldn't understand anyway. So even restricting that information is God's grace to us. God says, that's not for you to know or even to figure out. What is good is that you, you trust me, that I'm in control and I know what you can bear. It's the same answer that Jesus gave Peter and John, the end of the Gospel of John. Do you remember when Jesus restores Peter and they're sitting there and Jesus tells Peter what kind of death he's going to die? And Peter's all about it and he's being restored and he's listening to, to the Lord and then all of a sudden his eyes go over to John when he hears about how he's going to die, how Peter's going to die. His eyes start looking to John and he says, what, what about him? <laughs> you remember what Jesus said? You, me, follow, literally. You follow me. You don't worry about John. You don't worry about how somebody else is going to die. If you think that, that your death is, is more difficult or something that you're not desiring, put your eyes on me, not on, not on somebody else. Worry about following me. That's the only place that you need to fix your eyes. That's what will stabilize you. Not knowing information, knowing a person. Because that's where you'll find the foundation of trust. That's, and that's the purpose that he restricts that, that knowledge. Solomon says, so that, that no one can discover anything about their future. We think the more we know, the better we can handle something, but God knows that's not true. The more we know Him, the better we can handle the curse. And that's His goal. That's what's good. You might think of it this way. If you knew exactly what was going to happen and how much that how much difficulty you were going to have in in 2020, um, how much would you worry? Okay, in 2020, I'm going to face adversity in October. How would you live January through September? That kind of info would be crushing, wouldn't it? What if you knew the opposite? In all of 2020, you will have only ease and blessing and send me $7.77 and I could promise that to you, right? That's what the, the lying hypocrites that prey on the poor, that preach a false gospel say. It should anger you. It does God. What if you knew the opposite? In all of 2020, you really knew that you only have ease and blessing. How would your prayer life be? Would you seek God much? You know the answer. You'd be tempted to forget God in prosperity, just like Israel did. Which is why God says He's the one that knows the exact mix of prosperity and adversity to bring good in our lives, and it's good whenever we rest in that. The exact amount to keep the, crush, uh, the curse from crushing us and the exact amount of good and prosperity to keep us from from trusting in ourselves and forgetting Him. You see, God's goal is maturity, and our goal is comfort, isn't it? His goal is to form spiritual strength in you, to turn you into a useful tool for His kingdom, and that doesn't happen only with an easy life. We want comfort, but as one writer says, I have a, God says, I have a higher goal for you. I want maturity and strength and Christ-likeness. 
And understanding what Solomon says here changes everything. It causes you to evaluate life through a different lens. You weigh life with a different set of scales. And that's one of Solomon's main goals. To force you to see life as it really is and to teach you how to view it rightly. And be thankful that you don't know, but God does. And be thankful that you get exactly what God brings. Because if you didn't, we're so foolish, we'd take the gift and not give thanks to the giver and enjoy neither. So what's good for a man or a woman? Be aware of death. Be sensitized to death. Be sober-minded. Don't avoid hard lessons that come. Receive a rebuke. Be self-controlled. Good things come to those who wait. It's true. Be satisfied with the present. Don't live in the past. Seek wisdom over wealth. If you have to choose, choose wisdom. And submit to God's sovereignty in the curse and however it plays out in your life. And you will have a large portion of the curse reduced. It won't go away. But thankfully, one day, Jesus Christ is going to do that too. Should bow your heads. Wonderful wisdom. The way that you gain that, the way that you gain a desire to follow that, the way that you're even able to put that into practice in your life, there's one step that has to happen first. You have to, to bow the knee to Jesus. You have to end your rebellion toward Him. See, a lot of the, the crooked thinking comes because you're living your own life, operating by your own principles. And you have to die. The end of you brings the beginning of Him. But the Bible says that if you'll come to Jesus, He'll not only forgive you of your sins, but He'll give you a new life and a new desire and a new way of live and a new way to live, and then you can begin to grow. So if you don't know Him, He invites you to come today. Father, we love You. We praise You. Thank You for this truth. Oh, Lord, how I need this lesson over and over and over It's not a here once kind of thing. Thank you for reminding us of these things today. Help us, Lord, to look at life through through these glasses so we might have your good and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.